we have come to the conclusion of this book. We're, we're going to spend another, uh, another week yet after this in Romans, but, or a week or two. Um, but we are going to be reading the final verses of this book this morning. So let's stand up together in honor of the Word of God. As we read this glorious and beautiful doxology... From Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, this good and pure and perfect gift, we thank you, Lord, that through your word you have revealed yourself to us that we can know you truly By your Spirit illuminating our understanding, we are transformed into the likeness of our Savior, that we've we've been brought even from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, through your word this morning, cause deaf ears to hear and blind eyes to see, dead hearts to live. We pray, Lord, that you would transform your people more and more into the likeness of our Savior. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, today, all around the English-speaking world, thousands of Christians, thousands and thousands, will sing at some point the words of one particular poem. In specific, the words of the final stanza of that poem. It was a poem written in the late 1600s by an English pastor and scholar and author named Thomas Ken. Thomas Ken was an extremely courageous man, even standing against the king himself, spending some time imprisoned in the Tower of London, and he was prone to writing hymns and publishing them for his students, and he would teach them to to read these poems, to to pray these prayers, to sing these hymns morning and night. And one published book of these poems is called The Morning Hymn. And when he published this, he added a 14th stanza to this poem with the words that are almost now universally called the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The, the, the name doxology comes from the Greek word doxa. Doxa originally just meant an opinion. So your doxology of a person was the opinion that you held about that person. But over time, the meaning shifted a bit with that word, with this word doxa. It came to refer to someone's reputation, to someone's power. It eventually came to mean the honor and the glory that is bestowed upon another person. And in the New Testament, this word appears a lot, doxa. 
referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we read in, in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, that he was raised by the glory of the Father. Doxa, that's that word, glory. 1 Timothy 3.16, he was taken up into glory. That he was seated at the right hand of glory, Acts chapter 7 tells us. Hebrews 13.21, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, doxa, forever and ever. Paul and James both refer to him as the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2 and James 2. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, perhaps one of the strongest statements of Jesus' glory and divinity, it says this, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, we will, we will see his glory. We will see his doxa. We will see his glory. We will see his honor. We will see his power. So, so this is the, the doxology of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who he is. And our opinion of him in this life should match up with who he really is. Not with some invention of him. What do you think about? What comes to mind when you think about Jesus? A.W. Tozer famously said this, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In other words, Tozer says, here's the most important thing about anybody. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What are the thoughts that you have of him? What do you think about when you think about God? That that is one of the major goals as we gather together as the church every Lord's Day. Many churches are operating, many in the world think what happens on a Sunday morning when the church gathers is primarily about us. I'm looking for that church that does things the way I want to do them. They sing the way I want them to sing. The preaching is the way I want the preaching to be. The people are mostly like me. The timing works out for me. The temperature is right in the building. They have a coffee bar or they don't have a coffee bar. Whatever it is, you just need to know that's not, that's not even near the top of the list of why we gather together on the Lord's Day. It's so far off the list. I really think when people get upset about just about any of those things that it's stupid, just to put it bluntly. First and foremost, we gather to worship God. That's why we come. That's why the thought that Christians have of like, I don't know that I'm missing that much when I don't come to church is a backwards, wrong-headed thought. That's not why we're coming. We're not coming here because of what we'll miss if we don't come. We gather to worship God. God according to his command. That is the primary reason that we gather together as a church. That is the reason we are here. If it's not the reason that you are here, you just need to know it's the reason this church exists. And if it's for something else, there are better clubs we can join. We gather to worship God. We gather as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship the triune God in spirit and in truth. What we do here is not about us. It is about him. And then in God's infinite kindness to us, we also benefit greatly from this. From obeying this command to gather as the church of Jesus Christ to worship and exalt him, to lift our eyes off of ourselves onto him, off of this world onto him, we benefit 
greatly as we gather together to pray and sing and hear the, the word of the Lord read and to, to have the word of the Lord preached, to come to the table and have the Lord's Supper together. We are reaffirming every time we do that, that we are really the covenant people of God. We really are in a covenant with the creator, almighty, ruling God of the universe. What a glorious thing to remind ourselves of. In a world that's scary or boring, and it can go either direction for us given the day, to remind ourselves, no, I'm in covenant with the living God who made all things, who upholds all things, who will set all things to rights. We gather together expecting by his Holy Spirit to elevate our view of him. That that, that by his Spirit he would cause us to see his glory, that, that we would honor him, that we would worship him, that we would reverence him rightly. And most of us aren't aware of the thought process that goes on behind why do we do the things we do and we don't do the things we don't do. But you need to know the main driving force is we want to only do those things that cultivate reverence for God and we want to stop doing the things that rob us of of reverence for God. And so you might have been a part of this church for a long time and you go, why don't we do such and such that we used to do anymore? Or why do we do this? We never did it before. That's the answer. We want to cultivate reverence for God. As I look at the landscape of the American church, perhaps the greatest, most pervasive danger we are facing is a very high view of ourselves and a corresponding very low view of God. And that's how it is. The higher our view of man, the higher our view of ourselves, the lower our view of God. The higher our view of God, the less we fear man and the more humility we have. It's the lack of reverence. It's the loss of the sense of the transcendence, the the gravity, the vastness, the holiness of God. And so we must be intentional, church, about cultivating reverence. Our reverence leaks out of us. We have to cultivate it. We have to remind ourselves of the bigness of God. By the the Spirit's power and enabling to elevate together our opinion of God. That's one of the main goals when we gather together. To, To raise our perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in, in Romans chapter 16, after all that Paul has written, showing us the abysmal depths of the pit of depravity and corruption and rebellion and condemnation that we were in, taking us from that pit to the, the heights of the mountain peak of God's glory in salvation where we have been shown, Paul pulls back the curtains for us to see this eternal plan of God from before the foundation of the world unfolding in us. Where we've been shown his incorruptible power to save, his merciful faithfulness to all that he saves in keeping them. And then after showing us how to apply this gospel to our lives, that, that this gospel makes a difference in what we do on a Tuesday afternoon, and what things we will do and what things we will not do, what we set our minds on, such that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice of worship to him and are enabled by his spirit and by this 
new creation work he has done in us to actually live lives that please him. After all of that, Paul ends with doxology. That's the most fitting ending. Nothing else would make sense. And all, in light of all that Paul said, and we've seen in Romans several times where Paul is, is especially in those, those early chapters of, of doctrine and theology, those first 11 chapters, that Paul just breaks out into praise in the middle of it. That, that's the response of God's people to seeing who God is and what God has done. The study of God ultimately leads to the worship of God. And if your study of God does not lead to the worship of God, then you have not been studying God rightly. Or you've not been studying the right God. The natural response to a vision of God and his works is praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's what we read in in Psalm 111 verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. This upward spiral of glory and goodness. The more we know about God, the more we study God and come to know him, the more we delight in him. And the more we delight and worship him, the more we want to know of him. And it just keeps going on from one glory to the next, from better to better and greater and higher worship. Is it any wonder then at the end of this great revelation in the book of Romans, probably the greatest letter ever penned by a human hand, This revelation of God's glory and works that it would end with a hymn of praise to God. At the end of all that he said in this letter, what is it specifically that Paul exalts in here? That's what we'll look at as we look at these verses together, particularly verses 25 and 26. He says, first, now to him who is able to strengthen you. Paul exalts in the glory of God's power. He says he is able. That's this word dudameno in the Greek. It's where we get the word dynamic. It's even where we get the word dynamite. God is able. God is powerfully dynamic to do what? Paul says, to him who is able to strengthen you. That's the Greek word sterizo. To make firm, to make stable. That same word transliterated is steroids. Now, now, those who follow sports know that steroids are at times illegally abused. Athletes use them to get an advantage over other athletes by breaking the rules and do damage to their body. But we also know that steroids have a very good use. Many of us have had to take steroids at one time or another to recover from some illness, from some medical issue. And so Paul here gives the Romans this encouragement God is able. God is able to strengthen you. He will give you firmness. He will give you stability. He will give you spiritual muscle in your faith. God is able, Christian, not just to do that for the Romans, but to do it for you. He will do that for you. If you are in Christ, he will do that for you. He will strengthen you. And what's implied in this statement to him who is able to strengthen you is there's nobody else that can. It's just him. All others are unable to strengthen you. That's why verse 27 here calls him the only wise God. There are no others. There are no others with his wisdom. There are no others with this power. All other gods are merely frauds. They are imposters. 
All the gods of the world are takers, but the one true God is the giver. He, he gives salvation. He gives strength. He upholds us in it. He causes us to persist. He causes us to persevere in living faith. He has hidden us in his son, and in him we are secure. There is no one else. It's only in him. Salvation is not a momentary event in our lives. Justification is. There is a moment where we are declared righteous before God. But salvation itself is not just something that happens to you when you believe and are born again. Salvation can be spoken of as past, present, and future. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. The gospel is not just an announcement that God merely forgives sins. It's not just an announcement that you can go to heaven when you die. The gospel is the exercise of God's power against his enemies so that all those whom God loves and saves will be saved. The, the salvation by which we are saved is a work which will surely be finished once it is begun. If God has saved you, if you are in Christ, if Christ died for you, then you will be saved. And that's the first thing Paul praises God for. His power to strengthen, his condescending loving kindness to us, his absolute unrivaled power to make us stand firm. And, and how does he do that? How is it that we're strengthened? Well, Paul tells us as he continues on, he glorifies God now for his gospel. Look at verse 25. To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of this letter, Paul made this powerful statement. We all know it. Romans 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul goes on to tell us how eager he is to preach the gospel. How he's compelled, he's driven to take the gospel all over the world, even to lay down his life in order to preach the gospel. Why is that? Well, it's because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel is how God saves. The gospel is how God preserves. The gospel is how God strengthens his people and sees them through to the end. J. Sidlow Baxter, the British pastor in the 20th century, said this, Jesus Christ did not come merely to preach the gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show us the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And throughout this, this letter, throughout this epistle, this letter to the Roman Christians, Paul has been revealing and emphasizing the glory of God through Christ as he has been unfolding this gospel. Chapter 1, he showed us the depravity of man. He showed us the deity and authority of Christ. Chapter 2, he reveals God's impartiality, God's justice, his righteous judgment of men. Chapter 3 unfolds God's glory and redemption through grace alone, 
by grace alone, through faith alone. Chapter 4 connects saving faith with God's ability to keep his promises, to do what he has promised to do. It explains to us that salvation belongs to God alone. It's his to give. Chapter 5 tells us how Christ justifies us through his death in our place and breaks us free from our solidarity in sin with our father Adam in death. And instead he breaks us free from that and unites us to Christ by giving us life in him and uniting us in solidarity to him. Chapter 6 explains how Christ transforms then the lives of those who are in him. Chapter 7 reminds us of our daily need for this transformation, that we have this flesh that's always rising up in us, trying to pull us back down, and that we need to come to him again and again and again for this transformation. Chapter 8 assures us that if we are in Christ, God is working all things for our good and gives to us unbreakable assurance of our salvation in him. Chapter 9 declares the absolute sovereignty of Christ. He will accomplish every single one of his good intentions in election. Chapter 10 demonstrates the invitation of Christ to all who will come to him to come and be saved. Chapter 11 explains God's mystery His mysterious ways in salvation and praises God for the depth and the riches of his wisdom. Chapter 12 encourages us that the body of Christ has been empowered by God, is enabled by the Spirit of God to live godly lives. Chapter 13 restates the supremacy of Christ and tells us to live our lives in light of it. Chapter 14 exalts the grace of God and tells us to live our lives in light of that. Chapter 15 highlights our union with Christ and our unity with one another because of it. And chapter 16 glorifies God for his people's faithfulness and now finally exalts the glory of Christ and his gospel. What a glorious, all-encompassing, mind-blowing gospel. How glorious is our God? What human mind could have conceived of something like this. We do not preach the message of be good people. Try really hard. Do your best. Do more good than you do bad. And you'll be saved. No, we preach Christ. And him crucified and risen and reigning. This is the gospel we have been given. This is the gospel that Paul exalts in the Lord for. Third, Paul exalts in the glory of the revelation of God's mystery. This is all he says in the second half of verse 25, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known. Paul tells us the gospel is a mystery that's now been revealed. The the good news of salvation is something that was promised in the Old Testament, but it wasn't exactly clear what was being promised. There was mystery there. There was promise of Satan's defeat under the heel of the seed of the woman, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the first gospel proclamation. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. That promise was revealed in Christ's victory then. 
in his life and death and resurrection. But prior to that, there was mystery. Is it Abraham? No, it's not Abraham. Is it Moses? No, it's not Moses. Is it David? No, it's not David. Is it the prophets? No, it's not the prophets. That mystery is revealed in Christ. There's, there's a promise of a child to be born to a virgin in the prophet Isaiah. A child whose name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And that mystery is revealed in the incarnation of Christ as God became man, free from the curse of sin. There was a promise of a, of a Messiah who would be both reign as a king and suffer as a criminal. This mystery is revealed in the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. As we saw last week, there's this promise of the prophet, the priest, and the king who is to come. But no king in Israel could serve as a prophet. There were promises that this king would set his people free, that he would subdue all of his enemies, that he would bring blessing for Israel and all the other nations. And these promises were mysterious. In fact, they were misunderstood. We see that as we read the Gospels, don't we? Jesus was not the king they were expecting. He was not the Messiah they were expecting. These promises were mysterious. They were difficult to see. They required further revelation from God to be rightly understood. But when all was revealed in the life of Jesus and in the writing of the New Testament, every promise found its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's telling us. Every type, every shadow becomes clear in him. All the pieces of the puzzle finally fit together. They fall, fall into place. The, the Old Testament's like, like a good detective novel or detective movie, if, if you prefer. We're in that final act. Everything's revealed. All the pieces fall together. It's that aha moment. Oh, I see what was going on in movies. They, they do this scene where they kind of flash back to all the things that happened in the movie, and you're like, I totally missed what was going on there. I misunderstood what was happening. That mystery is made clear. That anticipation has its final pay off. And when this mystery was revealed, it is the greatest story that was ever told. The story of the greatest love ever given to undeserving rebels. The greatest sacrifice ever made to make us his own. The greatest rescue from the greatest enemies and all for the glory of the great God. Paul praises God for the glory of the revelation of this mystery. Fourth then, Paul praises God for the glory of his wisdom in salvation. Let's just read that, the whole thing again. Out of him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Once again, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is our best help in interpreting Paul's meaning here. Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul loves the gospel. Paul praises God for the gospel because in it is God's power his active power, his active might to save. It's a gospel that is not just for the Jews. It's for all nations. 
It's a gospel that is not one of works. It is one of faith. So Paul glorifies God for this free grace, for this universal offer of the gospel. And there are two important phrases we need to consider here in this statement. The the first is the fact that the eternal God has commanded this gospel to be made known to all nations. And second is this curious phrase, the obedience of faith. And, And Paul, in using these two phrases, is making an essential point. He's talking this way on purpose. The Jews were resistant to the gospel. Most of them rejected it. They didn't think that it was from God. This message is not from God. They didn't see that it was from him. They didn't see that it was his message. Even those Jews who converted still had a difficult time welcoming the Gentiles into the people of God. It was an uneasy transition. And an ongoing problem for the Jews was the matter of the law. Because the apostles' teaching that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone and not the, res- not the result of works of the law was a stumbling block to them. It was a difficulty for them. So Paul chooses his words very intentionally here in, in order to show his Jewish detractors this gospel is of God. First by stating the fact that this command to preach to all nations and not just the Jews is from the eternal God himself. This is not our idea. We're not trying to figure out how to, how to build a name for ourselves and build an empire and, and reach a bigger audience. This is the, the command of the eternal God. Take this gospel to all nations. And second, to refer to salvation by faith apart from works. To refer to that with the language, the obedience of faith is very provocative language. It only appears one other time in the New Testament, this phrase, the obedience of faith. And the only other time it shows up in the New Testament is in chapter 1 of Romans. And there it is also tied to this concept of all the nations as well. And so Paul bookends this letter. He opens and he closes the letter with these two provocative themes of taking the gospel to all the nations and of the obedience of faith. Flip back with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. And we'll see what Paul says here to start this letter off because it's connected to what he says here at the end of the letter. Romans chapter 1. Verse 5, he, he says that through Christ we've received grace and apostleship. And then he says to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. You see how these, these two things are tied together. The beginning of the letter, the end of the letter. Everything in between these two things is about that. And we need to be clear here as we hear this language, the obedience of faith. We are not saved by our obedience. Paul has gone to great lengths in this letter to show us how salvation works. We believe sola fide. We are saved by faith alone. But what is the nature of saving faith? And that's what this phrase is getting at. What is the nature of saving faith? What does saving faith produce? So Paul uses this language. 
the obedience of faith. It is faith that's driving obedience. Obedience is the sure product. It is the outworking of faith. All true faith is obedient faith. Faith and obedience are inseparably bound together. True saving faith always produces obedience. In fact, the first step of saving faith is the step of obedience. We obey the command, come. We obey the summons from the king. Believe, come. The gospel is a free offer, but it is more than just an offer. It is a command. This this gospel is often called in the New Testament the gospel of the kingdom. And this kingdom has a king. It is a command. And so the gospel isn't offered the way we might offer someone a piece of cake. You should really try this. I really think you're going to like it. No, you're resistant? Trust me, it's good. I've had it. You're going to be glad you did. No, the gospel is more than an invitation. It is a command. It is a summons from the king. We must respond. Jesus is king. He will not follow you. You must follow him. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Did you catch Jesus' wording there? It's, it's very significant. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Those who do not obey do not believe. Those who believe, in other words, those who have saving faith, obey. Disobedience is unbelief. And those who are in unbelief have no eternal life. Jesus connects these two things. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. A life marked by obedience to Christ is a sure sign that you are truly saved. The gospel is not just a nice add-on to our lives. Yeah, I got a lot going on here. I've got all these things I'm passionate about. And here's the gospel. I just kind of bring it in. And I incorporate it. No, 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 no. It transforms. It changes. Saving faith transforms a person. As Paul has shown us in Romans, we're giving brand new hearts. Our minds are renewed. We are, we are shaped into the mold of Christ and not the mold of this world. The gospel defines who we are. The gospel defines what we are. And the gospel defines what we live for. So we have to ask ourselves when we hear this language, does your life demonstrate the obedience of faith? Is your faith real? How do you know? How do you know that it is real? Well, the answer we see in Scripture is your life will tell you. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our obedience. But our lives will testify as to whether or not we have been saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless you have failed the test. Paul says, examine your life. Are you bearing fruit in keeping with salvation? 
Because Jesus Christ is in you. You will bear fruit in keeping with salvation unless, of course, you're bearing some other kind of fruit. That's Paul's way of saying you're out. Apple trees grow apples. If you've got a tree in your backyard and it is growing a pear, pears, and you bring me to your backyard and you go, look at this glorious apple tree, I'm going to have to break the news to you. It's a different kind of tree. Saving faith produces certain fruit. And if you are growing different fruit than that, you are a different tree. But that's what this language is telling us. What's the purpose of this life-transforming, gloriously saving gospel then? What's the thing Paul ties to it, both at the beginning of the letter and the end of the letter? Well, he says it like this in chapter 1, verse 5, since we flipped there. For the sake of his name among all nations. What's the purpose for this? It simply means everything focuses on the glory of God. Why are people saved? Why does God save people? To keep them out of hell? No, it's secondary. So that they can experience the love of God? No, that's secondary. So that they can have eternal life in heaven? That's secondary too. So that they can live better lives with God guiding them? That is also secondary. People are saved for the glory of God. That's the primary reason. It's his glory that's the issue. It's his glory that's the reason for everything. All the glorious benefits, those things I just named, those are all benefits to us from salvation, but they're not the primary reason for which we were saved. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 says, Every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. These are, those are those benefits. Every spiritual blessing, can you imagine? Chosen by God, you personally, specifically before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. He goes on in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is what God does for us in salvation. Hear those words from Paul. Before he made anything, not based on anything about you, he chose you for salvation. He predestined you for salvation. Those are Paul's two words there. That is glorious. I can't imagine a better gift. You've never been shown a greater kindness than this. You've never deserved anything less than this. And then he says this in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Why did he do all that? To the praise of of his glorious grace. Salvation is for his glory. The gospel is for the praise of his glorious grace. He saved us to make much of him. Why is that such good news? People hear this about, about God's zeal for his own glory, his jealousy for his own glory, of his doing all things for his own glory, and we just think, that just sounds bad. 
It sounds like an egomaniac. And it would certainly be true if I told you, I just want you to know everything I do all week long, it's for my glory. You would be right to find a new pastor as of this moment. And the reason is I'm not God. This is glorious good news. It's the best news that God does everything for his glory, that God is jealously guarding and upholding his own glory, the praise of his own name. Why is it such good news? Because God is infinitely passionate about his own glory. And Christian, here's what he did. This is what Paul just revealed to us in Ephesians 1. He took you and he wrapped you up in it. Even as scripture uses that image for us of being hidden in Christ, God has, in a sense, hidden you inside of his glory. That one thing which he will uphold above all else, that he will jealously guard, that that no rival will ever be able to touch or lay a finger on. God has wrapped you up in that. Our salvation is a matter of not our goodness, not our merit, not our strength, not our keeping ourselves on the right track. It's a matter of his glory, and he will always uphold his glory. He delights, then, to save people like you and me. He gives grace, then, freely to those who ask. Because his glory is most magnified in his grace. So is it any wonder? Is it any wonder, after Paul has written 16 long chapters... That Paul responds to such glories with praise to our triune God. There, There will be no end to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. There will be no end, Christian, to the glory that we enjoy because of what God has done to us through Christ and through his gospel. But oh, if you don't love him. If you don't know him. If you're not his, none of these blessings will be yours. Instead, there'll be no end to your misery. No end to your sorrow. No end to your regret. No end to your torment. I plead with you then on his behalf. In fact, I I summon you. Surrender your heart to Christ. Cry out to him for salvation. Beg on him to grant you mercy Instead of judgment, and friend, if you do it, if you come to him in that way, he will so gladly give it to you. If you cry out to him for mercy and salvation, he will give it to you with joy, with gladness. He will gladly strengthen and establish you in the truth of his gospel by his own gracious saving power. He will never turn away anyone who seeks him for mercy. He is able. He is willing. He is worthy. Come to him today, now. The command is now. Come to him now. Now is the moment of salvation. Tomorrow is is the devil's day, one of my favorite favorite preachers says. Now is the day. His grace is available for you now. In this moment. No Christians, meditate on the glories of God. Meditate on his gospel. How rich 
a treasure the Father has given to those who love His Son. May we never get tired of hearing it. May we never get tired of thinking on it and meditating on it. May we, may we never grow bored with this. May it produce in us high and lofty praise. High and lofty thoughts of God. May we commit our lives to proclaiming it for the sake of his name among all the nations. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Just close with this final verse from Romans. We'll spend more time looking at it tomorrow. What else could be said? One more fitting thing could be said to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Your word which reveals to us this glorious saving gospel. This Lord, this gospel that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived the great things that you've prepared for those who love you, but you have revealed it to us by your Spirit. Lord, we would not know this had you chosen not to reveal it to us. We rejoice in you. We rejoice and we glory in your great salvation. I pray, God, that we, your people, would lift our eyes to behold you in your greatness, in your majesty, in your worth. The praise would, would rise from within us. Thankfulness rise from within us. Humility rise from within us. Courage and boldness rise from within us. That we would be compelled in the same way we've heard from our, our brother Paul. Conscience bound to proclaim this good news to a dying world. And I do pray, Lord, for any that don't know you, that have heard my words, that by your Spirit, in your grace, you would open their eyes to see their great need. Lift their eyes to behold the Lord Jesus Christ and see him rightly and so be saved. Thank you, Lord, that this is your work. You are a God who saves. We pray that you would do that knowing, Lord, that it's your delight, that your glory is magnified in your mercy. So we thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We praise you, Lord, for your power and your might, for all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.